Hi, I'm Michael Cashew. And I'm Adi Cashew, and you're listening to The WAG Podcast. This podcast is about health, wellness, and personal development. Each episode is a short conversation between Adi and I on a single topic with actionable steps. We cover everything from food, mindset, fitness, and relationships. We started WAG because of the way health and fitness changed our lives, so we hope to share a tool or two that helps you along your way. just a quick message before we get the show started. We're reopening registration for our coach certification on October 7th. If you're someone that's had his or her life changed through nutrition and you're ready to give back, then this could be a great program for you. If you just want to learn and gain knowledge for yourself, this could be a great program for you. And whether you want to start a side hustle, a full-on business in nutrition coaching, or you just want to add this skill set to what you're already doing in your career, this is a phenomenal program. It's a six-phase course that ranges from the fundamentals and basics of nutrition science. We go into teaching you about setting and changing macronutrient profiles, creating custom nutrition plans for people. We teach you the art and psychology of coaching, and we give you a ton of practical applications doing sample check-ins. The best part of the program is that you will be paired with a digital mentor, which is one of our top coaches that will give you feedback throughout the entire course. Registration opens on October 7th. And if you're interested, go to workingagainstgravity.com forward slash coach hyphen certification, or just go to workingagainstgravity.com and click the become a coach button. And if you're on the fence, if you've been on the fence for a while, I highly recommend you sign up at this launch because this is the last time that we will have this price Uh, in January when we reopen, it will be significantly more expensive. So if you're interested, check it out, workingagainstgravity.com forward slash coach hyphen certification. We are on. What's up? What is up? Welcome back, y'all. Thanks for joining us today. We're doing, well, I was going to say last episode. I'm sure we'll do lots of parenting episodes. But as promised, we said we were going to do an episode on the first year of our son's life, Shai's life. First 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 month. (laughs) First month of uh, his life. And here we are. We're going to talk about a ton of things. We're going to talk about him spending the first week of his life in the NICU, the neonatal ICU. We're going to talk about how sleep has been, nutrition, exercise, how our sex life has been, everything in between. Yes. He's eight weeks old, uh, almost eight weeks old, and he's actually in the room with us. So if you hear something fussing in the background, uh, that's what it is. And also, just a heads up, this episode might be more than our usual 20 to 30 minutes because we have a lot to cover and a lot of questions from you guys, but we're going to try and not drag on too long about these topics. So to start, if you haven't listened to the last episode that we did about our birth story and how Shai came into the world, he came in around four weeks early and needed a little bit of extra support, which put him in the NICU for the first week. And honestly, his coming into the world for me, was super fast, super shocking. I mean, I had one contraction and then nine hours later we had a baby and then immediately he was taken to the NICU where in the NICU we are in the times of COVID and only one of us could visit him at a time. And 
you could be there 24 hours, I guess, but he is on his stomach sleeping and you can only touch him um, every three hours, meaning there's these touch times that allow that they change his diaper and they take his vitals. And so those are the times times they allow you to go. Yeah, that's the time. Well, you can go and sit there by his. And just watch him. Yeah, you can go and watch him sleep. But the only time you can touch him or really like connect with him or do anything with him is during those touch times, um, which a couple of them are at, I think like two o'clock in the morning and five o'clock in the morning. Um, and so we really use that time to get some good sleep and to recover and go to as many touch times as humanly possible. But it all went by, it was kind of a really big blur for me. You know, you have a baby, it was kind of a crazy labor and delivery. And then, um, you only get to see him every few hours. So what was that like for you? Mostly fine. I was sad thinking of him being like traumatized in there, just not being able to be with his mom. Every time I would think about that, that definitely made me sad. And at the same time, I felt really confident that he was in the best place possible for them to take care of him and get him back to regular health. Pretty quickly, we heard that for babies born as early as he was, a month early, the things that he was experiencing were completely normal. So I'm usually overly optimistic. So I just didn't think anything bad was really going to happen to him. And you and I were just like already so excited. I felt like we were working together as a team. There were so many like fun moments, hilarious moments. I don't know if you want to talk about the breastfeeding thing, but <laughs> hilarious we'll moments. <laughs> it was just like a really sweet time. And it wasn't, it definitely wasn't what we expected, but I think we did a, an amazing job of, of, making the best out of yeah, that situation. Definitely a really, I think it might've been a little bit more challenging for me in there than it was for you. I had all this physical recovery going on and I had this full-time job of pumping, making breast milk and pumping every three hours. And now at this point, eight weeks later, I can pump probably in five minutes and be done with it. At that time, it would take me 30 to 45 minutes to pump, to make milk, to get it, to clean it, to walk to the NICU, to bring it there, to do all of that. Um, so it was a big, hard adjustment. I got almost, I think I got basically no sleep in the NICU for the first week because I had to pump every three hours and because it took me so long and I was getting used to it all and Mac trying to see him every single possible chance we got. And one thing that I think is important to mention is a lot of a lot of women experience some level of postpartum depression in the first few weeks, um, if not longer after having a baby. And being in the hospital, I got asked about postpartum depression a lot, probably two or three times a day, somebody would come to me and say, how are you feeling? Um, do you want to hurt yourself? Do you have feelings of hurting the baby? Or um, a lot those like questioning, trying to see if I had postpartum depression. And I don't know that I had postpartum depression, but I definitely can understand why that might happen. And there were so many hormonal changes happening. And one thing that I was different than what I thought it would be is I thought that I would have this I don't know, it's hard for me to even say, but I thought I would have this overwhelming, like, oh my God, this is like my heart has expanded and I love him so much. And and I definitely loved him for sure. And I, I would do anything for him. And I was doing as much work as I possibly could for him, but I didn't feel this like connection that I thought I would feel or even close to what I feel now. And I felt kind of guilty about it and a little bit like, man, am I just... I don't know, am, am I going to feel that way about him? Am I going to have this love or this overflowing waterfall of emotions that I hear so many people talk about? And it just didn't really happen for me that way. And did you were you aware that that's super normal? 
Yeah, I kept, we talked about it a lot. So I think we, I kept, I continued saying how I was feeling out loud and I kept reminding myself that none of, nothing that you feel in this period of time is wrong. There's no right or wrong feelings at that time. And it is important to just have people to talk to about it and not just, if I would have kept it in, I think I would have felt really shameful and guilty and like, why don't I love my son as much as the movies talk about or as much as my friends have talked about? And I just really didn't feel that way. I didn't get to know him. We didn't get to spend time together. I created him and put him into the world and then he got taken away. So I didn't, even when we did touch each other, like I get to hold him, he's like attached to all these tubes and I'm afraid that I'm going to unplug things and I'm kind of stressed a little bit the whole time, like a little slight amount of stress because I'm just, I've never held a baby before and all of those things. Um, and I just kept reminding myself that it's okay to feel that way and there's nothing wrong with feeling that way. And I would talk to you about it. I had a bunch of friends that I talked to about it. And what was really healing for me in that period of time was just talking to as many friends as humanly possible, just sharing with them updates on the baby. I love, we did like this daily update where we would copy and paste it and send it to everyone that we knew. So that was healing for me in that period of time. I want to talk about breastfeeding. Yeah. I don't know how, I mean, at the beginning it was funny. What Michael's laughing about is we became this like NASCAR pit crew breastfeeding team that uh, we really, I am so thankful that you were, I don't think I could have done it with any other partner. Maybe I could have, but having you was so helpful, (laughs) but I would pump breast milk and Michael would be on clean the parts duty. So he would put, put the parts away. He would clean them and he would have them set up so that the next time that I needed it, um, I would be able to use it again. And at the beginning, I just like needed him to like, I only have two hands and I have to express breast milk with my, with my, both my hands. And I needed him to help me. We got really close, closer and more intimate than we've ever gotten in our lives. Um, and we were just like this team of breastfeeding. One thing nobody told me that I wish I would have known was that when your milk comes in after the first few days, apparently it's really common. I don't know if this happens to everybody, but it's what happened to me, um, is that your breasts become like incredibly engorged and they were like full and hard and painful and terrible. I mean, it was so, I think it was the worst part of the whole process. They were so hard, so full, so painful. And so I found myself like massaging before I would pump and then pump and then massage again afterwards. Took me so long. Um, I had no idea that that was going to happen. And I remember calling, asking you to call the lactation consultant to come into the hospital, which is a blessing about being in the hospital and, um, making sure it was normal. And apparently it was, and it does go away. So if that happens to you, it will actually go away. And what, it lasted a week? It lasted a week. Um, Maybe not even. Yeah. And it like would actually wake me up when I was sleeping. Like Mm -hmm. it was wake me up. It was so painful. And the only relief was making milk. Like that was the relief was to like relieve yourself. Um, It was very intense amongst recovering and walking to the NICU. It was a very intense experience and I'm grateful that you were there with me for sure. Um, let's talk about exercise and nutrition and recovery. So I had a vaginal delivery and I also pushed for two hours. So I had a lot of recovering to do. I didn't really, um, tear all that much. I had one really small tear and, what nobody told me though, was that you've pushed, you're like pushing a baby out is kind of similar to taking a poop. And, um, when that happens, 
um, like your cervix has stretched and expanded to bring the baby through. And then the next day I'm supposed to go to the bathroom and I have to go number two and I'm sitting on the toilet legitimately terrified because I cannot push this poop out. And it's just like, am I going to be okay? I'm worried that if I push it out, some organs are going to come out with it. And it's just the weirdest feeling ever. Um, I could imagine you're sitting in the main room and I'm in the bathroom and you're hearing me being like, oh no. <laughs> and uh, there was some like, they give you some stool softeners and stuff like that to help with that. But that was just also something I had no idea that I was going to have complete terror just going to the bathroom. It was like two weeks of very, very intense recovery for me where it was hard to walk and I had to walk to the NICU every single day. I wish I could have just laid in bed for a lot more time than I could. Um, it was like sore and it felt heavy and I could do no exercise at all outside of walking to and from the NICU for the first two weeks completely. Um, it wasn't until the third week that I started walking and I didn't even walk very far. I walked like... I don't know. Where's Treadwell? How far is that? Like 400, 400 meters. Yeah. So I walked like 800, 800 meters. So I'd walk like 800 meters each day. And then I would come, that would be my exercise for the day. And I didn't start really doing any type of like body weight exercises until around the fifth week. And I was cleared by a physical therapist that that was okay for me to start doing. She did some work with me, made sure that my diastasis, which is the ab separation was healing. I definitely really was patient and I'm still not even really pushing myself that hard in the gym. We're eight, I'm almost at eight weeks and I work out three or four times a week and um, I'm not, I'm definitely pushing the intensity, like trying to go harder than I have in the past, but I'm not pushing weights or anything like that. And if anything felt weird, I would stop. Was it hard for you to be patient and like wait for the go ahead? Yeah. Yeah. I think that part of the emotional issues that I was having in the first few weeks of pregnancy, and we talked about this a lot, or not pregnancy, postpartum, was I normally have this like release that I can have through exercise. And I don't think I've spent that much time not exercising since I was 16, maybe. Like it's been over a decade of working out every single week of my whole life and of my whole life <laughs> over a decade. Yeah. It's my, me. I talk in hyperbole sometimes. And, uh, so, All the time. <laughs> so not having that like physical release of being able to just get into the gym and let go and just move my body and breathe really heavy. It was actually really hard. It just, I just felt like I had to love some level of boredom. I felt like, I was more tired. Like I felt sometimes working out gives me more energy at the end of it. Like I feel so good. Um, yeah, it definitely was really hard for me. And then knowing that you were working out every day was even extra painful for me because I would see you work out and I'm like, oh, that's what I want to do. And I never felt that during pregnancy. Like you could drink and I couldn't drink and I wouldn't feel resentful, but I was definitely a little bit resentful that you could work out and I couldn't and you could just do whatever you wanted to do with your body and I couldn't. So that was definitely hard for me for sure. Yeah, and I'll just not that this is about me at all, but you know the the dads are definitely somewhat affected. And I remember hearing, I, I guess I've heard the concept that a lot of new dads gain weight during like when their wives get pregnant, and that went in one ear and out the other for years until you got pregnant. And then I started to see how that could happen. And because we're preparing, we're having more conversations, we're not going out and about as much. 
also like COVID is a thing. And so I don't have a gym to go to and I'm just not nearly as motivated in the gym. And so for me, I didn't want to end up being one of those people that ended up gaining weight just because you were pregnant. And so I made it a, a non-negotiable that I worked out every single day and I was more consistent once you got pregnant than I was before. And that's not to say everyone should be able to find 60 to 90 minutes, but um, I think if you're intentional, you can find five to 10 minutes to exercise every day and it goes an, an incredibly long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was the same thing once the baby came. I mean, you left the hospital every day to come home to go work out. Did you ever feel any like guilt or anything around that? A slight bit, yeah. But the most important thing is that I put my own oxygen mask on first and I know if I don't take care of my body and my mind, I'm not going to be fully present with you. And we've, you know, we've prepared for this for so many years and that is just a part of our relationship. You know mm-hmm. that that's how I behave. And so like I didn't feel like you were um, judging me or feeling like I shouldn't do those things. With that said, I still felt some level of guilt. And I think that's okay. And I just pushed through it and um, I made sure I wasn't gone longer than I needed to be. Yeah. I do I do think sometimes it's like we have these expectations that we've heard of what the kind what being a great dad is supposed to be and what being a great mom is supposed to be. Like I had some levels of guilt of not being in the NICU for 24 hours a day, just mm-hmm. like sitting by his bedside and watching him sleep. And I really had to let go of a lot of that. Like, no, uh, I'm doing the best that I can and taking care of myself is the most important thing right now because if I can't be a good mom, then I, that's, I'm not useful to him at yeah. all. And you're not helping him by watching him sleep. Exactly. It was hard though because I feel like in the movies they would do that. Oh, in the movies they definitely would. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about nutrition. How oh, was that for you? Nutrition was pretty much the same. I mean, if anything, nutrition in the in the, while we were in the hospital was probably worse than usual. We were eating to-go food most of the time. We didn't want to eat the hospital food, not because – I mean, it just wasn't tasty. Yeah, (laughs) It wasn't like a health thing. It was more like it just didn't taste good. So we didn't want to eat the hospital food. Luckily, we're going to talk about friends and family helping us. Um, We had some friends that delivered us uh, breakfast and dinner every day, and that was really, really helpful. Um, Michael would also go um, home every day, so he would bring stuff from home or from the grocery store, things like that. Um, I think nutrition, honestly, since getting pregnant – this has been, you know, my life's work. My life's work is nutrition. So it's not to say that, you know, if you're a mom out there who has a baby and you really struggle with with nutrition, um, comparing yourself and you haven't been working on nutrition for more than half your life, it's not useful to compare to me or to compare to Michael, who's been in fitness for such a long time. We've been drilling these habits for a really, really, really long time. And nutrition is one of those ones that's just easier for me to keep on track once we have the baby because I am not spending so much mental energy trying to make it happen since I already have made that skill more ingrained. Um, it's a lot easier. So really just focusing on nutrient-dense foods. We are probably eating lower carb than usual. I mean, I'm definitely eating higher fat than I'm than I have been eating. I'm not working out as much and I just want to eat higher fat foods. Mm-hmm. Um, but Pretty typical, like lots of vegetables, oils, nuts, seeds, fats, different types of meats. Just really, we've been eating really delicious food mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> All right, let's talk about sleep. I feel like going into being becoming a parent, this is the aspect that I was most 
fearful of, honestly, because you know I don't do well with sleep deprivation. Yes, I know that. And every new parent just says, oh, wait, you're not going to sleep. It, it, and it's just a very negative kind of stark thing. Oh, just like catch up on sleep. You're never going to sleep again. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, shit. And we're in like the breastfeeding class before the baby comes. And they're like, okay, you're going to breastfeed every three hours. And breastfeeding is going to take 45 minutes to an hour. And then you're going to have to put them down. And then you're going to have to do it again. And I'm like, so the math on that is I'm getting a maximum of maybe an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes of sleep in a row. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, shit. And I'm definitely not the kind of person who can nap during the day. It's really hard for me to nap during the day. I'll just close my eyes and I I won't actually fall asleep, which was useful, mm-hmm. to be to be honest. Just to close my eyes was actually useful. I'm laying there and having some level of relaxing. Um, it was true for the first week in the NICU, mostly because pumping milk takes took me longer at the beginning. And um, I had to go and walk over to him and scrub in and all those types of mm-hmm. things. Um, it has gotten better every single week though. So uh, meaning, you know, there was a couple nights here and there where he literally was awake so much during the night and I didn't get that much sleep. But we've kind of found this like flow between each other of how can we get each other to maximize as much sleep as possible. So we're 100% breastfeeding and the baby's also in our room, um, meaning if the baby's in a nursery away from you or if your baby's being formula fed uh, or you're using any other types of techniques, your baby might sleep longer or might sleep less. Like mm-hmm. it, all the different strategies create different types of scenarios. So breast breast milk um, is digested quicker than formula. So babies are going to get hungry sooner. So it's natural for the baby to wake up more often. And then having him sleeping with us in our room, he's in a bedside sleeper, like connected to our bed. So he can actually hear me and smell me. And when I get closer to him, he stirs. Every single noise he makes woke me up. um, And he just like knows I'm there. So it might encourage him to not sleep as deeply and therefore wake up more often. Um, But a good night, he sleeps for four hours and then four hours, but I'm awake in those period of time. So I'm getting like three hours and three hours. Um, that's a really good night. And so I haven't had more than that since he was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about our our rhythm with each other. So we the way that we started out was like when we brought him home and we actually had him, mm-hmm. Adi would feed him and then every time he woke up, I would wake up and change his diaper and so we were both waking up all night long. Obviously, she's having to stay awake longer because she's feeding him. And we, so we did that for a week or two. And then you suggested that, I think we started with, I just wake up once per night to change one diaper per night. And then you suggested that I go down to zero. Why did you do that? Yeah, well, one, I think we know that I do better with less sleep than you. So we have that that understanding out the gate. Um, at the beginning, It was really nice to have you waking up all the time with me. And it kind of just felt like we were in this together. Like I'm not doing this by myself. And you really only woke up for like five minutes at a time. So I would breastfeed him and then I would tap Michael and then he would get up and he would go change the baby's diaper and then put him down. Um, I would go to sleep, try and go to sleep in that period of time. And it was just nice to be like, okay, I don't have to do everything by myself. And, you know, I have somebody who's on my team doing this with me. And then I realized that every time we changed his diaper, he would really wake up. So we wanted to change his diaper less often at night to encourage him to sleep more. Um, So that meant 
maybe only changing one diaper in the night. And that was when, um, in the second feeding or the second time he fed, just so he's not sitting in a poopy diaper for so long or sitting in a really wet diaper for that long. Um, and then eventually, um, we just went through the whole night to just encourage him to sleep for as long as possible. So that meant that, um, I didn't change his diaper in the middle of the night either. Cause we'd wait, we'd change his diaper and he would just wake up and he'd be awake and he'd be making noises and it would, I wouldn't get any sleep. So that's just what works for us right now. So right now I'm breastfeeding throughout the night and that's usually two, maybe three times a night. And then I'm getting sleep in between and he's going to sleep in between, sometimes making noises. And I've trained myself to tune out the noises that are not actual cries. Like if he's just making the, <laughs> newborns are noisy creatures. They just make all sorts of noises. And if it's not crying, he's fine. And I also try not to just like lean over his bed and just put my face really close to his face and see what's going on because then he smells me and maybe it'll cause him to wake up even more. So I'm training myself to just let him be. And if he needs me, he's going to cry and I'll gonna, I'm going to know. Then in the morning when we wake up, um, he has his last feed and then Michael takes him at six o'clock in the morning and we're incorporating one bottle a day. So that's one time where I buy myself like a six hour span because I feed him generally every three hours. So Michael takes him in the morning and if he, let's say he fed at 530, uh, Michael will take him, give him a bottle at 830 and then I don't really have to be up until 1130. Like I don't have to be like up and alert. I am waking up and I'm doing my day, but I don't have to breastfeed until then. So that's been incredibly helpful, mostly because Michael takes the baby out of the room and I can sleep without the baby in the room. And that I actually get a really good sleep when he's not in the room with me. I go, I like pass out almost immediately and it feels so good. And it's usually one of my favorite times of the day with him because I just get him all to myself. He's super quiet. And a lot of times we'll either go on a walk and I go and work at a coffee shop or um, he'll meditate with me while he's making little grunting noises mm-hmm. um, or I'll read or write or something like that. And we just have a quiet little morning. It's great. Yeah. So that's our current situation. I'm sure we'll do another podcast where our situation would change. Um, and we're just, uh, we're not getting that much sleep, but I, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I cannot lie. I'm, I'm getting nearly the same amount of sleep. Mm-hmm. I just, I can hear him when he like, if he'll cry in the middle of the night, I hear him. But other than that, I don't, I have like very similar sleep and I feel kind of guilty even saying that. And I, 100% realize that some babies are just, they can be a little inconsolable at night and that's kind of the luck of the draw. I don't mm-hmm. think we're doing anything magical to have him sleep as well as he is. And on the flip side, some babies sleep a lot longer. Um, why did I? Why did yeah, I because because I said we're not getting that much sleep. Oh, but I'm getting, I'm he's getting, getting great sleep. sleep. Yeah. Just to clarify, I'm not getting that much yeah. sleep. So I have not had a single night since he was born. It's been eight weeks where I've slept longer than three hours in a row. Mm-hmm. That's just like the truth for me. And I do know that I tolerate sleep deprivation better than most people. I don't know if that's healthy for me in the long term. And hopefully he starts sleeping longer and I don't have to deal with that long term. But meaning like emotionally, mentally, I'm not becoming a terrible person um, that being that way. Um, and if you're not though, it's totally okay to just give your baby bottles. And if that's going to make you a better mother or a better father, and you're going to be able to be mentally healthy and physically healthy, then I would have done that. If I was like you with sleep deprivation, I probably would have done 
asked if we could do more bottles and you wake up in the middle of the night half of the time and I wake up in the middle of the night half the time, uh, we would have had to do something different if we weren't who we are. So um, that's just what works for us right now. That's kind of how we share responsibilities in terms of sleep. Is there any other way? How else do we like divide responsibilities during the day? I mean, at the beginning, we just had him all day together. Michael took a couple weeks off of work and I'm still not quite back to work yet. I'm just doing a few things here and there like this. And uh, the way that we divide responsibilities, if I need to go and do something, I'll communicate with you and say, hey, are you free to watch him during this time? And then you'll watch him. Um, if not, I'm pretty much responsible for him for the whole day. And then we kind of rotate evenings. Yeah, that's that's honestly been one of the challenges for us so far that was kind of unexpected. Like before we were both so independent. If we wanted to do something, we would just put it on our calendars and go and do it. Now, every little thing, at least in the beginning right now, as we're really, really figuring out each other and figuring out how to take care of uh, a baby, we have to really consult each other every time we want to put something on our calendar. And it's like inconvenient and annoying and it's created a little bit of conflict at times. Um, and in the moments that we remember to communicate and just talk to each other before we want to do something, it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a and lot smoother. It kind of scheduling has definitely just become more difficult. He has to eat every three hours and it's depends where are we going to be? Are we going to be in the car? I can't obviously can't breastfeed him while the car is moving. We really have to be more diligent about how we schedule things. And that's just been constant, constant communication. We're, I'm glad that we had the foundation of being able to talk to each other beforehand, before having a baby. And we really worked on our relationship and communication. And, um, it's been, I think all of those skills have really been useful during this time because I can totally see how couples just are just don't have energy. They just don't have energy for each other. They just maybe say the wrong things or maybe make assumptions. Like I assume that you're taking care of the baby and you assume that I'm taking care of the baby and then I can't go do what I want to do or you can't do what you want to do. I could totally see that spiraling out. Um, and we've done, we've hit those issues already. Um, we're just talking about it. And I think really communicating is really helpful. Okay. How did you mentally deal with the body changes? This is a question that uh, someone sent you on Instagram. The body changes. I mean, I'm still going through how am I dealing with the body changes for sure. Um, like my boobs are completely different than they were before. And I'm not sure that yeah, it I, must be really hard having boobs like a porn star. No, that's not what they're like. <laughs> I mean, you think that I do not feel that way about them. That's not, it's like, no, porn no, stop. <laughs> it's definitely not how I feel about them. I, they're just like different and they're bigger and more sensitive and some, they fluctuate between being full and empty and it's just weird. Um, how am I dealing with the body changes? One, I talk about it a lot. I talk about it with my friends. I talk about it with Michael. I talk about it with our coaches. I talk about it. I just, I talk about things a lot. And then um, the other thing is I try and just take as good of care of myself as possible. So that means that I am in the times that I'm breastfeeding, I was like doing things like scrolling on social media or being on my phone and I felt like it was draining me of energy. So I'm doing things like reading fiction instead and it's helping me with my mental health. Um, I'm trying to work out as much as I possibly can, which is not most days. It's like three or four days a week. Uh, and then I am also eating as good as possible. And I know that if I'm taking care of myself, then it just makes me feel so much better about my body in general. Um, 
that's my best advice in general, like for anybody who's struggling with body image is just really try and take care of yourself. And that means the basics. So Michael makes a point to make sure that I get a shower, make sure that if I want to go get my nails done, I can go get my nails done. If I um, need a haircut, I can go to get a haircut. It's, I can put jeans on instead of wearing yoga pants all day. You really do a good job of making me point that out. And it makes me feel so much better about my body. Yeah. I've read in multiple places and we heard from, I think a couple people that mom's hygiene and like kind of like doing, what's the term for it? Doing yourself up, doing Um, yourself up, like getting done up a little bit, Mm -hmm. like just has a really can have a really big impact on your emotional well-being. And so that really resonated in my mind that I I try to make sure that you have space to really take care of yourself. Yeah. There are, have been moments for sure of feeling a little bit guilty about it and yeah, just like taking that time away and is it worth it? And because I think the story's fed to me that I'm not supposed to do that. And a good mom doesn't do that. A good mom doesn't go and get her nails done the first few weeks that her baby's around. I went, I think I went, the, the, I went once when we were in the hospital, but we had, we kind of had more time away from the baby when we were in the hospital. Um, and we knew he was being taken care of, but I went once, like, I think when he was three weeks old and we had him at home and the people at the nail salon were like, how are you here? Who's watching the baby? And it's kind of like this stigma. Like if you're not a hundred percent paying attention to him or taking care of him, then you're not necessarily like, how is that possible? Or you're not necessarily doing a good job. And I'm just choosing not to believe that story. I know I'm a good mom. I know I'm doing the best that I can. And I know that sometimes just getting my nails done makes me feel better Mm -hmm. and it's worth it. Literally the most common thing that I've heard about what it means to be a great parent is it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you like what kind of extracurriculars you put them in it's the example that you set for them and we want our kids we want shy to see us taking care of ourselves and this is a this is just a part of it and you don't have to take off take six months off of taking care of yourself for an unknown reason yeah and I think about like my mom who my mom started having kids really young and in a lot of ways she like put her life on hold. And I'm so grateful to her for that. And I know that she loves us so much. And if I could speak at the time and maybe let's say she wanted to do something and she wasn't doing it because she had to take care of, she felt like she needed to take care of us, but my dad would, or somebody else would. And she had somebody like I have you. If I could have spoken, I probably would have told her to go and do it. And I would have been like, yeah, go take, take an hour for yourself, take two hours for yourself. But I just couldn't speak at the time. And I couldn't tell her that's the kind of mom that I want to be. So I am trying to deal with any guilt that comes up and reminding myself of that. Like I'm a good mom. I know that I'm a great mom Mm -hmm. and um, going to get my nails done doesn't change that. And also we probably should have given this, I guess we've given this caveat a a little bit, but uh, again here we realize that not everyone's schedule um, a lot like gives them much space at all. We're super fortunate. We were both able to take a full month off and that gave us more flexibility and more time to take care of ourselves. With that said, um, it just doesn't have to be a lot. You can, you can probably find creative ways of getting in little bite-sized moments of self-care no matter what your situation is. And I think, let's say you're in a different situation. You have friends that maybe you trust that maybe they could just come come over to your house and let you take a shower. Like, hey, can the baby mostly sleeps, especially at the beginning. So 
hey, can you just hold him for a second or watch him for a second? And I'm going to go take a shower and I'm just going to like take 40 minutes to an hour by myself if your partner's not home or they work, if family lives nearby, if, you know, anything, if there's, there's so many ways that you can get creative to just get a little bit of time to yourself instead of just giving up and just immediately giving up on yourself. There are definitely those certain situations like single mothers who have no help and no family around. I know Amy Everett was one of those people and I actually called her recently and was like, how did you do it? And she said, it's just like all a blur and she's not sure how she did it. But if you can in any way find time to take care of yourself, um, I hope you just don't feel guilty doing it. Uh, we had a question about how to navigate friends and family visiting. When I grew up, it was just understood that as soon as the baby came out, the family would just come into the hospital room and everybody would be there. Then the next several days, like all of the friends would just roll through. And I never even considered that there was another option before we were um, talking about having a kid. And one of our friends waited... I think a full week mm -hmm. and they said they wish they had waited two because it allowed one, probably most importantly, the mom to physically recover and not feel like, um, I don't know, people had to see her in such a vulnerable state. Mm -hmm. And two, they just had the opportunity to really be um, a small family unit for the first week of the child's life rather than having to um, cater to or host people in their home or anything like that. And so that was really appealing to us. And that's basically what we did. Yeah. It kind of like was a forced thing because of COVID and we were in the hospital for the first week. So we kind of couldn't have any visitors. But even for the week afterwards, we had a full week of just us. Um, we also live in different cities from our family. So it also, I mean, I think they would have come if we would have allowed them to come sooner. Um, maybe not my family because they are in Canada and they can't right now. Um, but your family definitely would have been here if we would have encouraged that. Uh, it just gave us an opportunity to just be... I definitely have hosting tendencies. So if someone was here, especially because they don't live here, we would have been worried, what are they doing all day? Do they feel like, do they, do I feel obligated to have them in our house all the time? I'm recovering and I kind of can't really walk even a lot. I'm sleep deprived. I don't want to have to cook food for anybody. I don't want to have to care about what other people are doing. I just want to spend time and figure out this whole breastfeeding and baby thing. So we took an extra week to just be just ourselves and for me to get the hang of breastfeeding. Luckily, Shy was a great breastfeeder. Mm -hmm. He latched very quickly um, and we haven't had much struggles in terms of that. But um, yeah, we waited a while and I actually am really grateful that we waited. I am too. One, one thing that I feel like was super valuable and that we heard from one of our friends recently, maybe it was uh, my sister Siobhan, is when there's a bunch of family and friends around that want to help out really early on, I think it can, it could possibly rob the, the new parents of figuring out how to take care of the baby, especially the husband or the, the father. And just being the two of us for that those two weeks, it it forced me to figure out a lot of things that I might not have had to. And it made me, because I was putting in more effort and attention into our baby, it made me care about him more. It made me feel more connected to him because I just felt like more of the more a part of the process. Yeah. And a lot of the times when people are helping out that early, they really just want to hold the baby. 
and they just want to hold the baby for a, and really what you want help doing is with laundry and cooking and cleaning up around the house. And, um, it's kind of hard to be like, no, I want to hold the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're like, you get to hold the baby forever. It's like, well, I haven't met him before and I want to hold him. So, um, it really gave me the opportunity to just hold him for the whole time. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was really special. Another thing that was incredible that we did when we had him was that we, you know, all of our friends asked how they could help. And I think that's really common if you're blessed with a a great community of people or a great family. Everybody wants to know how they can help. But if you're a new parent, you probably have no idea how they can help. Uh, One of the ways that we asked our friends to help us is to make meals for us. And we found this really cool um, technology or website, s- website mealtrain.com, mealtrain.com that allows people to sign up for, to make meals on specific times of specific days. And we don't have to do any of the organization. We don't have to do any thinking. We can even, and we did, we gave them some of our preferences, like restaurants that we liked, food items that we liked. And they just went and signed up for a bunch of them. We probably got like 20 to 30 different meals. And it's still happening. We're getting, we still have like six more meals coming our way. And it's amazing. Yeah. And the baby's going to be, I think it's all the way for the first three months of the baby's life. Um, We still have more meals coming. And we actually had somebody else in our community plan the meal train. So they set up the website, they set up, they sent it to everybody, mostly because it's really uncomfortable to ask for help. And it's really uncomfortable because I felt like I was a burden or people didn't really want to, or they're just, you know, they're doing, they feel obligated to say, how could I help you? And they don't actually want to, but I think the truth is people really do want to. They just want to know exactly how. And having this website with specific days where they can deliver meals and tell them when, um, it gave people very clear uh, guidelines on how they can help us. And I remember even being in the hospital, they changed the meal train because we weren't expecting to be to deliver us one meal in the morning and one meal in the evening. And anytime we would go to the, the main, like the parking lot or whatever to pick up the meals from our friends, there was huge smiles on their faces. Like people love helping. And I think that not knowing how and get, then getting these clear instructions makes it really helpful for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really uncomfortable though to put, to lean into that and be like, yeah, this is what we want and this is what would be really helpful for us. So let's talk about our sex and intimacy postpartum. Okay, so the story is that's in the media and society is you're not going to be interested in sex and your sex drive is going to be low. And that is definitely true uh, for me. It's not necessarily true for everybody, but I definitely felt like my sex drive was lower and I'm obviously recovering from a vaginal delivery and the idea of penetration is just not like oh my gosh, terrifying. There's no chance that I want that to be happening. But I know that sex can look in a million different ways. And it doesn't necessarily just have to mean penetration or that type of sex. It could mean oral sex, or it doesn't even have to mean oral sex. It could be cuddling. And it could be just like skin to skin contact with the baby and the mom is important. 
just having skin-to-skin contact with you was really helpful for me as well. Um, It could mean just getting a hug. It could mean just kissing. It could mean so many different things. Um, Anything that promotes intimacy between the mom and the dad that are now this like team that has to be connected together to take care of this baby. And I feel like for moms, it can be really isolating because you really are the only one that can do a lot of the work of taking care of the baby. And I think a lot of dads just feel like there's not much for them to do. Um, yeah. So one, I really appreciated that you were very patient with me and also we got super creative. We did, we We had our best makeout sessions since (laughs) like the first yeah. little bit that we met. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. So we had amazing makeout sessions. We used like like feathers sometimes or coconut oil to do massages or different types of like apparatus, like toys or different types of things to just be creative to have intimate time together with no expectations. And I think that it's really important for partners to know that moms should really lead this. And if your wife or your partner or your, the mom to the baby is feeling touched out, meaning like she's been breastfeeding and she's been doing skin to skin and she just like doesn't want to be touched, then maybe intimate time just looks like you guys sitting together and having a, a conversation, just asking like how we can spend intimate time together and not putting any expectations on it. So as a woman myself, I know that anytime you would you would come to me, let's say you'd come to me right now and we'd like you'd kiss me in that way that I know is like you know the, yeah like the specific type of kiss that you know is gonna lead to more than just love you bye and then um, just to say like right before you would kiss me you would look at me and you say hey I just want to kiss you right now and I want to give you a passionate um, like sensual kiss and there's no expectations that this would lead anywhere else and I that, did that was once. but it's like really helpful to right. have that. It ended up being a great makeout session. Exactly. <laughs> and just knowing that we can kiss without the expectation that this is going to lead to sex gave me the ability to lean into and relax to actually kissing you uh, instead of being like, oh no, I hope this doesn't lead to anything. Oh no, he like I'm worried that he's going to be disappointed if this doesn't lead to anything or I'm going to be pressured. Um, I think that's a really key thing for the partner. Mm-hmm. And then what was your experience like once we started like slowly ramping things up what was your feeling like for yourself yeah so I know that this isn't the same going to be the same for everybody but we had some times where we would just be cuddle with each other and our skins would touch and it would remind me that there's a piece of myself that still belongs to me and this might not be the experience for everybody but I would love for women to at least entertain the idea entertain the idea that there's this piece of you that still exists like there's no sexual energy between me and shy he's just a baby and he breastfeeds but there's nothing sexual about it it's just i'm feeding him um but being with you there's like sexual energy being transferred between me and you that that's nothing like it's totally my own it's only for me it's only it like helps me connect to myself and it gave me this moment of kind of like healing after sharing my body with him for so long of oh I still have this piece of me that's just for me and it's not connected to him and I'm an individual and now I'm I'm also a mom but I'm also me. And it helped me remember that I'm my own person. I have my own needs. I have my own, I'm, I'm just separate from him. And it was really, really healing for me aside from being fun, but really healing as well. Well, it was damn healing for me too. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about our biggest lesson so far. So first and foremost, the thing that has impacted both of us is the power of our minds and perception. 
it could be really easy to let to have let things that other parents have told us get us in a really negative headspace. And I, you you actually made an Instagram post about this recently. It seems like the majority of advice and I and um, words that people told us before we had kids kind of had a negative tinge to it. Like parent, like being a new parent kind of sucked, but it's, it's, it's still worth it. Yeah. Like, but, it, but it really sucks. Like most of it sucks. Like you're never going to sleep again. You're not going to have date night again. Like, oh, you won't be able to work out. You won't be able to eat healthy. You won't be able to prioritize your relationship. Work is going to suck. Like all these types of things. You're going to feel so guilty going to work. Mostly it just sucked. And then there'd be moments of like, oh yeah, but it's totally worth it. Mm -hmm. We're like, but it doesn't sound like you think it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And so our MO in just about everything in life is to not succumb to the status quo and not just take people's word for it just because you know a lot of people believe that. And we really wanted to challenge that because it didn't make sense that you would choose to become a parent and then just it would mostly suck. Mm -hmm. And so we were very intentional about the language that we used. So for instance, when you were preparing for birth specifically, instead of using the word pain, yeah, pain, mm -hmm. you wanted to intensity. talk about intensity and moving through intensity. And so we were, we've been very intentional about the way that we speak about our experience so far. And I think it's had a really big impact on our, our perception. Yeah, And that's not to say that people don't have really challenging experiences. Like some babies are in the NICU for months and some, some mothers go through severe postpartum depression or they have like health complications and there's so many different things. It's more just about, um, we also had challenges and we had our own challenges and the challenges that other people have aren't necessarily the ones that you're going to have. Just because somebody says you're never going to have date night again, that's them projecting their experience onto you. And that doesn't mean you have to take that on as your own. It might be true, maybe, but I would, if that's really important to you, I would challenge you to try and see a way for you to make some version of date night continue to work. Like we still have date night every Tuesday, but the baby comes and maybe it looks like sitting in the park and we hang out with him, but it's just something different than what we normally do or putting on a nice outfit, um, something just different. I encourage everybody to just create their own story. You're going to have your own challenges no matter what. Um, so it's not worth taking on other people's. And if you expect to have a negative experience, it's so much more likely that you will. Mm -hmm. But if you remain open to experience and just stay present to whatever it is, then the possibilities are endless and you can actually have a really positive, um, smooth experience at mm -hmm. times. We've definitely had challenging moments. I've, have, I've felt sadness and anger at times and frustration, um, but that's not been the majority of the feelings that I've had. Yeah, and the best things in life have challenges mm -hmm. and that's the challenges have this edge for us of excitement and opportunity and hopefulness because it's all just a phase. And I think our second biggest lesson was that things just move really quickly. One second, he's five, six, or he was almost seven pounds. And then now he's like almost 11 pounds and he's just huge. That's four pounds. Yeah. Guys. He's just huge. And he makes fists and he grabs my shirt and he's like making, he's following our faces now and he's smiling and things just change so quickly that just knowing that all of this is going to be a phase and the challenge is not going to last forever and you're going to make through, get through it. And 
I hope it just builds your confidence and the ability to do really hard things. I think becoming a parent and going through labor and delivery, I literally think I could do anything. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like I could do anything. And I know a lot of people were probably thinking like, I'm having this really challenging experience and just because I can prioritize my nutrition and fitness, maybe... I'm you're thinking that I'm assuming that you should be able to that's not what we're saying at all we're all we're saying is that you can do the things that you want to do and you're stronger than you think and you can have a good attitude even in the face of really really hard things I've met people going through terrible challenging like like chronic illness or death or all these different things and still able to have a positive attitude and I know that anybody can and one thing that I really love that you say all the time is that you don't want to wish away time mm-hmm. and very related to things moving so quickly. I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, this is just a phase. I can't wait until this this is over and he's doing that next thing. Um, one thing I heard on, I think I shared this with you on, the, on Sam Harris's Waking Up app recently was that one way to experience gratitude is to realize that there will be a last time that you experience every single different thing in your life. There will be a last time that you talk to a certain friend. There will be a last time that you ski. There will be a last time that Shy wears this outfit that he's wearing today because he's growing out of it so quickly. Mm -hmm. There will be a last time that he cries and, and wakes us up in the middle of the night. And if we can remember that, stay present to that, then I think we can find a lot more gratitude for even the quote unquote challenging uh, parts of this experience. Yeah. I think it's really easy to say, I can't wait till he can hold his neck up. I can't wait till he starts crawling. I can't wait till he can wipe his own butt. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to wish away time. I want to because I think once you get there and he's wiping his own bite, you're, you're looking at old pictures of him tiny and you're like, oh my God, I, I wish he was just tiny for a little bit longer. <laughs> he's still tiny. Yeah, he's still tiny. But uh, yeah, I hope that helps. All right, guys. Man, that was a massive, uh, massive download. I know. Podcast. If you have any uh, questions for either of us, you can reach us at Michael or Adi, A-D-E-E. Kazu, C-A-Z-A-Y-O-U-X. Yeah, let us know if there's any specific topics you want us to talk more about or better yet, you can submit a question by going to workingagainstgravity.com forward slash podcast. Scroll down to click start a recording, say your name, where you're from, and then ask us any question that you have about pregnancy, parenthood, postpartum, being a dad, being a mom. Um, We're so new at this, but we love talking about it and um, want to tell you guys all the things that we're learning. Bye, y'all. Thanks for joining us. Stay in touch by signing up for our newsletter at workingagainstgravity.com or on Instagram at workingagainstgravity. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and refer a friend. We'll be back next week with another episode. Talk to you then.